from John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25, and I've got that on page 1111. John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, whilst he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Let's pray. Our Father, how wonderful it is to have your word before us. And so we pray that through it you would speak. We pray that you would use me in my weakness that you would open our hearts to hear you and to believe and to obey. We pray that we would truly know you as you have revealed yourself. In Jesus' name, Amen. Where are they? I can still remember trying to keep calm as I looked for my mum and my brother. We'd been coming home from the swimming pool, I was probably around 10 years old, and I was riding my bike. And I'd ridden ahead of them and arrived home and had to wait because my mum had the key. And so I waited. And I waited. I waited for what felt like a long time. And finally, finally I decided to go and look for them to see what was taking them so long. I rode back to where I'd left them and they weren't there. I rode back home and they weren't there. I was pretty sure everything was fine. But slowly that panic started to creep in. Had something happened to them? After waiting at home some more and then riding back, finally I found them coming out of the supermarket that I'd ridden past quite a few times by now. Finally, my searching could stop. Maybe you've experienced something similar. Maybe you couldn't find your plane ticket or you lost your child in the supermarket. 
You started to panic, I'm sure. That same question repeating itself in your mind. Where is it? Where is she? The question probably spilled from your mind to your mouth. You probably said it out loud. You were so panicked until finally it was found. The answer was finally given. As we look at John 2, this passage, we're confronted by a similar question. One that people have asked in every culture since the beginning. Where is God? Where can we go to find God? It's an important question and people have been desperate to find him because it's only when he's been found that we can make sense of life that we can have meaning and purpose and hope. It's the question that we should all want the answer to. And it's the question that makes sense of this strange story because it explains the strong reaction that Jesus has to what he sees. But it's also, it also makes the passage far more mysterious and far more wonderful than we could ever imagine Because the answer to the question will change. The place where we find God will move. This passage asks, where can we find God? And as we move to the the first scene, in verses 12 to 17, we find a noisy temple. Jesus has just gone up to Jerusalem because it was Passover. This was one of the uh, three feasts every year where every Israelite man was expected to come to Jerusalem, come to celebrate, to remember that time when God had saved them from their slavery in Egypt. And so we read in verse 14, In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, when you read that verse, thinking practically, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. Just think about it. People were travelling from all over the country, even uh, from different countries, and all of these people were coming and they needed to offer a sacrifice at the temple. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that there would be uh, animals there to buy. Just can you imagine thousands of people travelling not only from Uh, the country of Israel, but from uh, other places around it. Not only coming to Jerusalem, thousands of people coming to Jerusalem, but thousands of people with a cow, with sheep, with doves coming to Jerusalem. And it makes sense that there would be money changes. Here we have people from all over the Roman world coming to Jerusalem, each with different currencies, and they need to pay the temple tax. They need to have their money exchanged to that currency that the temple accepts, just like we need to exchange our money when we go overseas. But Jesus isn't happy. Verses 15, 16. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? But what's the issue? 
Are the people selling cattle and exchanging money crooks? Maybe they're selling those animals for far more than they're actually worth. Maybe the exchange rate for changing money isn't fair and these people are being taken advantage of. If you read through Proverbs, you'd be amazed at how often you come across uh, something like this. The Lord detests differing weights and dishonest scales do not please him. God doesn't like it when people are cheated, when they get less than what they paid for. That doesn't really seem to be the issue. Jesus, Jesus isn't angry that people are being cheated. He's angry that there's selling going on at the temple at all, that it's become a marketplace. Why? We need to understand what the temple was. The temple was the place that God met with his people and where people met with God. When the temple was first established in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 6, verses 20 to 21, Solomon prayed, May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Our passage asks, where can we find God? And for those people at that time, the answer was the temple. The temple was that special place that God, that had God's special attention. Now, yes, God is and was everywhere and the people could pray anywhere, but he was at the temple in a special way. And so people came there to pray and to hear teaching from the priests and to sacrifice so that their sins could be forgiven. And so as we think about that and we think back to our passage, most likely this buying and selling that was going on was happening in the outer parts of the temple. The place where Gentiles were allowed to be. This was a special place for those who weren't Jews so they could come, they could pray to God, they could hear teaching. But can you imagine the noise now that all of these animals were there? really hard to hear people when you're in a crowded, noisy room, isn't it? Even when the person is right next to me, I need to usually bend down, because they're usually shorter than me, especially if it's Chris, I need to bend down, put my ear closer to them so that I can hear the need to repeat what they're saying. It's hard to hear them. Most of us are Gentile. And that means that if we were living back then, we would be sharing that court, sharing the court that was reserved for us, the place where we could meet with God, where we could pray and contemplate and hear teaching. We would be sharing it with thousands of animals and the people who are keeping them in control and the people who are changing money. Can you imagine trying to concentrate, to think about God, to pray to him? Can you imagine trying to confess your sin, to hear the teaching? 
bad enough at church today when an ambulance with its siren on goes past or a really loud motorbike. Just imagine that constant noise of all of those animals and all of those people who are trading. And so we see Jesus in a completely different light to anywhere else in the, the Gospels. Because Jesus starts using muscle. He starts forcing out the traders and the animals. Jesus is angry and indignant for the Gentiles who come to his father's house and who aren't able to worship there because of all the commotion caused by the Jews. Jesus is concerned for the Gentiles. He wants them to find God and he's angry that the Jews have been hindering them and so he uses force to get those animals and those traders out. Now he's not violent. He doesn't use his fists. He doesn't beat them up. But he did what he had to so that they would leave. Now we'll, we'll talk a bit more about what this means for us later, but for now I just want to quickly mention what this doesn't mean for us. And I'm sure you know this already, but this does not give us an excuse to be violent or pushy. Jesus is the great example for the Christian. He teaches us what it means to live God's way in perfect obedience. And so, yes, we should strive to be like him. But that doesn't mean that we can copy everything that he does. There are some things that are his alone. He's alone because he is the king. He is the Christ. We saw uh, in Malachi, uh, that passage that we read before, the promise that the Messiah would come and he would purify. Now, ultimately, that passage is talking about the return of Jesus, but here in John 2, we have a little taste, of a hint of what will happen at the end. Christ will come in judgment to clear out wrong worship and to halt the abuse of others, among other things. And so here in this passage we have a taste of what the Messiah, the Christ, will do. And so we can't use this passage to justify violence. In the first century, God could be found in the temple, but the traders had taken that away from the Gentiles. And so Jesus gave it back to them. He was zealous for God's house, like David was in Psalm 69, quoted in verse 17. So we've seen a noisy temple. But now, as we keep asking the question, where can we find God? We come to verses 18 to 22. The risen temple. Verse 18. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Here we have some of the Jewish authorities, either those who are in charge of the temple or they're the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. They demand a sign from Jesus to prove that he has the authority to do this, that he can legitimately drive out these people and animals from the temple. Just imagine going somewhere, going to say a, a cafe and, and having someone randomly tell you that you had to leave this place now. 
one question that I would be asking, I don't know about you, but I would be asking, who are you? Is this someone just playing a prank? Or do they actually have the right to tell me to leave? If this is a police officer or someone else in authority, then I'll listen to them, although I'd probably want them to prove that they are who they say they are. I'd want them to show me their badge. But if not, I'd probably ignore this person, wouldn't you? And so the Jews want a sign from Jesus to show that he has the right to do this. Show us your badge, they're saying. They know that only the Messiah, the coming King, has the right to do this and they don't know Jesus. And they can't just let anyone come in and run the temple. Jesus responds in verse 19. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Jesus won't be bullied by these leaders. He won't produce a miracle just because they demand it. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah, not them. He has the authority. It's not the other way around. But still, he does give them an answer. But no one understands what he's talking about, do they? Verse 20, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. For the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The Jews wrongly think that Jesus is talking about the physical temple. And you can't really blame them for it though, can you? If if we didn't have verse 21, we would have absolutely no idea of what Jesus is talking about. We wouldn't know that he he was talking about his body and so they're dismissive. King Herod has been expanding the temple and some consider it to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. By this stage of building, the project had been going on for about 46 years and it still wasn't finished. And so that would have been an amazing miracle, a fantastic sign, wouldn't it? To rebuild alone in three days would have taken many people 46 years to build. But the greatest sign It's what Jesus actually meant. The temple he had spoken of was his body. The temple was symbolic of God being with his people. But in Jesus, symbol had become reality. Because Jesus really is God in the flesh. When he acted, it was God acting. When he spoke, it was God speaking. Jesus is God in the flesh, God with his people. Jesus is the true temple. When Solomon had built the first temple, he'd acknowledged in his prayer that God didn't really live there. The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. But Jesus is God. He made all things. He came to this world in the flesh. In him the fullness of God dwelt. God had truly come to earth to be with his people. To be with his people in the person of his son, in the person of Jesus, something that was only symbolised earlier by that building, by that temple. And so Jesus, because he was speaking of his body, was offering a greater sign than just reconstructing a building. 
More than that, he was saying that the proof that he was uh, the Messiah, that he had authority over this temple building, was that he would raise himself from the dead in three days. Typically, though, no one understands what he's talking about, not the Jewish rulers or the disciples. But after he was raised, the disciples remembered. And they did believe. Now, there were people at this point in verses 23 to 25 who thought that they believed in Jesus. They thought they knew him, but Jesus wasn't impressed. They didn't know him, but he knew them. He knew their hearts and he knew that they didn't have genuine faith. They were impressed by what they saw, but they didn't know Jesus or why he had come. It wasn't until the resurrection that they could understand. This passage answers the question, where is God? We've seen a noisy temple and we've seen a risen temple. We've seen Jesus zealous for that temporary temple where God dwelt for a time and we heard him say that he is the new temple. And so if we want to find God, we need to come to Jesus. And so the question naturally arises, where do you try and find God? That might not be the right way to phrase it in our culture. Maybe you don't really think that you're looking for God. Maybe you're looking for meaning and purpose, hope, love, destiny, a plan for your life. Where do you look? Where are you trying to find it? Maybe you look to the stars, reading your horoscope every morning to find out how the, supposed, how the placement of the stars can supposedly impact on your life. Or maybe you uh, think that by following your passion, you'll find meaning and purpose there. Or maybe you come to church because it's here, unlike anywhere else in our culture, where deep things are discussed, where God is sought after and hope is actually held out. But none of these actually can give you what you need. Because the stars can't tell you anything. They're lights in the sky. What makes us think that they have the answers? Why would we put our trust in people who who, who write general statements that could be true of just about anyone? Following your passion might make you happy, but you're not going to have purpose. Purpose can only come from outside us. We can't make purpose up, no matter how hard we try. And the church can only point like a sign to the one who can give us all these things. It's only in Christ that you can find God. He is the temple. Everything else will only lead to disappointment or delusion. And so come to Jesus if you haven't already. Come to Jesus and find God because it is only through Jesus that we can find God. There is no other way. But for those of us who have come to Jesus and who through him have found God, what does this say to us? First, it impacts on how we view our church buildings. And this is always dangerous to talk about, 
especially for someone as young as me. But I've seen how easy it is for people to value the church buildings and the furniture and all the other trappings that go along with it to value it more than they should. Decisions about whether to replace the old pews with chairs, to remove the organ, these things can split a church. It's not how it's supposed to be. I know of a Presbyterian church that doesn't want to, or at least didn't want to, I'm not sure what's actually happened now, but they at least didn't want to replace the broken sign at the front of the church, the thing that couldn't do the job properly, because it had been there since the church was built. That's not how it's supposed to be. Our buildings are a gift from God, but they're not sacred. They aren't a temple. There should be nothing in this church building that is sacred. Not the instruments we use or the songs that we sing. Not the pews, not even this pulpit. There should be singing, there should be praying, there should be teaching from the Bible. But the furniture shouldn't be there just because it's always been there. And to be honest, it's been really encouraging to be at this church and to see that you know that. This platform has been built and a shiny new lectern is right there. The musicians have moved from over there to over there. Finally, we can see Chris as he leaves the service. Don't worry, I'm not gearing you up for, uh, for more changes that it will happen in a few weeks. I've got no idea what's going to happen. But it has been wonderful to see how this church has been able to embrace change to make the most of the space that you have so that more people can come and they can hear the message of Christ. Now, don't hear me saying that all change is good, that we should just change things for the sake of changing things, but not all change is bad either, and it's good to see that you know that. But please make sure that you remember it. When it comes to change, just because I like something that way, doesn't mean it's the end of the discussion because if I'm a Christian, I should know that it's not about me. It's about others and encouraging them to come to God. Jesus was zealous for God's house because he was zealous for people to come and to know God, to come and find forgiveness in him. And so let's be like Jesus. If there's something in this church that can legitimately be changed, to encourage more people to come to Jesus, then that is always a discussion that is worth having. So from this passage first, if you're a Christian, don't treat this building like it's a temple. And lastly, because it's in Jesus that we find God, let's make sure that we don't let go of Jesus, that we don't get distracted from him. Because it's so easy to make it about the church, and not about Jesus. To measure our Christian life by our prayer or our Bible reading or uh, how often we're at different church activities. And all of those things are important. Do those things, don't get me wrong. You'll benefit from them, but we don't earn our way into God's presence by doing these things. Jesus is the temple and we come to God through Jesus, not by earning brownie points by coming to church or doing anything else. So all of us need to check our heart. How do you think that you get 
into God's presence by being good enough as a Christian, dedicated enough? When do you feel like you can't get into God's presence? Is it just after you've sinned? If that's the case, then you're falling for that lie that you have to do something, that you have to earn your way to get to God instead of the truth, that God has come to you in Jesus. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We don't come to God by being good enough. We come to God by the way opened by the body of Jesus, by his body that died on the cross to remove our sin. It was our sin that made us far from God. It was the wall that divided us from him, that giant chasm that we couldn't cross to get to him. But by dying the death that we deserved for our sin, that barrier has been removed, that chasm has been filled in and Jesus rose to assure us that it's all true. There is no other way, only through our risen temple, only through Jesus. Our search for God is over when we come to Jesus. And so have you come? Have you come to him, to the temple of the living God? And if you have, are you zealous for others to come to him? Or are you zealous for the building? Remember, we find God when we come to Jesus. And so let's pray. Our God, how wonderful and glorious it is that you have made a way for us, that you have truly come to us in the person of your Son. How wonderful it is to know that in him we can have newness of life, we can have peace, we can have purpose. We pray that we would treasure him above all things, that he would be the way that we come to you and we would not strive to come by any other way. Now, Father, for those who are here who do not know you, for our friends and our family who do not know you, who have not yet come to Christ, we pray that they would. Our Father, have mercy on them. And may they come to Jesus, our risen temple.